You are listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Nicholas Christakis. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Tell us how you bring together scholars from diverse disciplines, sociology, economics, computer science, and so many others, and have projects around the world. I'm blessed to have, over the last 25 years or so, worked with young scholars in almost any discipline you can name, computational genomics, physics, applied mathematics, sociology, economics, political science, anthropology, public health, medicine, biomedical engineering, I mean, robotics, computer science. You know, in a way, I try to create in my lab, we have an open door policy, and I like to describe it as sort of the island of lost toys. So, you know, young people who feel like they don't fit anywhere else in the university, somehow find me. And after I make them jump through a few hoops, they're welcome to join the lab. And then I try it as much as possible to create in the lab a very open and supportive joy of discovery place, you know, a place where people are just excited about what they're doing and try to foster an environment where people do their best work. And that doesn't always succeed, to be clear, but at least that's the environment we try to create in the lab. Well, it sounds that the members of your lab have a wonderful opportunity just to discover. I think one of my jobs is to take young scientists and grab them by the shoulders and move them as rapidly as possible to the scientific frontier and then point and say, look out, stand and look out from here. This is where the new knowledge is. And that requires a lot of hard work and running by the young scientists. They have to learn a lot of skills, a lot material quickly, but then they can, if I can get them to the scientific frontier, then their efforts are used in a way which lifts us all up. I mean, lifts them up, it lifts me up and it, it creates a kind of a more fertile environment for discovery amongst the, the younger people in the lab. So you've been talking a lot about interdisciplinary thinking and speaking of that, I was wondering how we can apply your findings and your thoughts to environmentalism and the climate crisis that affects us every day. So what do you think is the role of altruism in matters that seem less urgent in our daily lives, such as climate change? First of all, we are actually working in the lab on some issues of climate change. You know, how the particular nature of the what, what's called the collective action problem, or sometimes similar topic is something called the social trap. You know, why each person acting in the furtherance of their own interest, seemingly rationally, can create an outcome that is disastrous for all. But one of the ironies of the climate catastrophe, unlike the COVID or other epidemics, is that the time horizon over which that unfolds is sufficiently long that it's some future people that will be harmed the most. There are ways in which some of the work we do in the lab on how humans can cooperate, and we've been doing a lot of experiments understanding the mechanisms of human cooperation and the sorts of social environments that foster cooperation maximally. So we've done lots of experiments with large groups of people to see how we can make cooperation better. Some of that work is also, I think, relevant to how we get people to work together to confront climate change. We love the positivity. We do want to also work on climate change as you do as well, but it gives you a perspective. See, this is the thing. So Steven Pinker has argued and others that the world is getting better. And all the evidence suggests this. But what I was arguing in Blueprint, which I read at the beginning, was that the world is getting better not just because of recent historical forces. It's, it's, the world is good and getting better because of this arc of evolution as well. And that, in fact, this should be a pleasing thought to us because it means it's not just about the 
ups and downs of what modern societies are doing that really matters. How do you apply your study of systems to cities? As you know, we're living in the center of the city and we hear so much about innovation and smart cities, but really people, many people don't know what their future is going to look like. Uh, they face food insecurity, water shortages, heat waves, storms, it's, it's everywhere. There's real uncertainty about how we can redesign our systems. What are some projects or what is your perspective on this? So cities are amazing. Now, why are they amazing? Well, there's one aspect of that that relates to some of the work my lab does on human social interactions, which is the main focus of what my work in my lab does. We look at the mathematical, biological, psychological, and social underpinnings and consequences of human social interaction. And that is that as the size of the population grows, the combinatorial complexity, the network complexity rises super linearly. So a city of that's 10 times the size has a hundred times as many social possible social connections. And it's these social connections between people as we started about at the beginning that lead to the creation of new ideas, people mixing and bumping into each other with different occupations and different business ideas and different ways of life. And so one of the ideas about cities is that they are these creative places and as they get bigger and bigger, they get more and more creative. Right. And you've been talking a lot about democracy and the choices we make as individuals and the faith we should have in democracy. But I think it's fair to say that the state of the world and the state of at least the U.S. democracy can be questioned at times in terms of how much faith we can have in the system, how much faith we can have in the uh, politicians that represent us. There's a lot of muddiness with oil donation monies. And I know there are certain laws around donations, what can be donated to a person Absolutely. versus the campaign. So I'm wondering what you think. So I wouldn't in the, you can frame the ability of, this is a complicated topic, but you can frame the ability of companies to make donations as an issue of free expression. In other words, people are enacting and shareholders and corporations are not people. And then somehow they represent people and should they or shouldn't they be able to do it? So, but the way I would handle this is I would put into place rules and regulations that require transparency, uniformity, and so on. Every politician has to reveal where their money comes from. Every corporation, every entity has that's, I would throw bright light on it. I wouldn't try to regulate where money can be spent or who can spend money. And I would have them be content neutral. So the kinds of things that I'm interested in, in free speech as well, is I want the lack of corruption and I want transparency in our civic life. And then let ideas and, and citizens sort it out after that. And we want fair rules, fair umpires, a non-corrupt judiciary, a free press. We want transparency. And then we can fight it out with those fair rules. And, you know, I won't always win. I know your project has been around COVID. My lab is doing a bunch of things. We're doing a lot of stuff in global health where we invent and primarily test mathematical algorithms for mapping networks in developing world settings, like in villages. But these same tools can be used in schools or in firms. Can we, in fact, induce artificial tipping points in human populations and change population behavior at scale? So that's one thing we do. We do global health stuff. We also do a lot of work on the microbiome. We're very interested in how the bacteria that live in us and on us might spread through social networks in ways that are very important. But increasingly, I'm beginning to wonder whether there might literally be a biological contagion of human emotions, for instance. So that's some work we're doing in the lab. We have an initiative in, in artificial intelligence, and, uh, and we've published a stream of papers on this in what we call hybrid systems of humans and machines. And this is the idea that increasingly we're going to see, certainly online, we're going to see 
bots and humans interacting on a level playing field, but we're also going to see it in the real world. And, and just to be clear, my lab is not a computer science lab. We're not in attempting to invent super smart AI to replace human cognition. We are inventing dumb AI to supplement human interaction. Are there simple forms of artificial intelligence, simple programming of bots, such that when they are added to groups of humans, because those humans are smart or otherwise positively inclined, helps the humans to help themselves? Can we get groups of people to work better together, for instance, to confront climate change or to reduce racism online or to foster innovation within firms? Can we have simple forms of AI that are added into our midst that make us work better together? And the work we're doing in that part of my lab shows that abundantly that that's the case. And we've published a stream of papers showing that we can do that. As you think about the future, education, the challenges we face, what were some important life lessons? I think there's no way to live a life without risk or pain, unfortunately. And I'm not saying we should seek out risk and pain, but I think that trying to live a life that avoids those completely will thin out your life and will impoverish your character and your mind. And I say this, having spent an hour and some odd time with you now talking about optimism and hope, all of which I also believe, but I think in order to have that kind of open optimism, you have to accept and confront the, the pain and the difficulties in life as well. For there we find the beauty. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions and interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.